Now, as I said, this evening I want to speak to you on the truth about marriage, right? The truth about marriage. Now, immediately, as I say that, I realize the impossible task ahead of us, right? Many people believe God has no business whatsoever to tell us who we can and cannot marry. We are living in a nation that is championing, of course, no fault divorce, uh, which has already had its first reading in Parliament. Uh, we are living in a society in which public policy uh, has been outsourced to the LGBT movement at every tier of government. Uh, we have a Prime Minister in Boris Johnson who is living in an adulterous relationship, he is cohabiting with another woman whilst still married. And of course, there has been no single word of condemnation from any Christian leader publicly. The days of John the Baptist calling out Herod and Herodias seem far behind us now for the church. The church, of course, struggles to speak on these issues because the church itself has an appalling record us when it comes to our marriages. We are casual about marriage, just as casual as many of our unbelieving friends. Many pastors avoid talking about marriage, divorce and remarriage, except perhaps at weddings for 20 minutes. I'm trying to think the last time I had a sermon just sitting down on marriage and I, I was when I attended a wedding. So, so pastors avoid talking about this. Why? Because talking about these issues hurt people's feelings and uh, they end up causing conflict even in churches. As I've been reading through the church minutes going back to 1823 when this church was started, they are in there, and if you're interested in reading some of them, they are very interesting. If you can read some of the old English way of writing, it's quite interesting. I realize that in this church's history, it's had times in which it has lost members, uh, at one point losing as many as five families over the subject of divorce and marriage. So I'm aware, aware that this is a sensitive subject, and I'm also aware it's a huge subject when it comes to the subject of marriage. And this sermon is not going to answer all your questions. Uh, you can come and ask me some of them afterwards, and uh, I'll try and speak and to ensure we finish here at 6 o'clock, right? So there's lots of things here, and it is also very sensitive. Because all of us, as I said, know somebody who's married, or know somebody who's divorced, or know somebody who's remarried, and so forth, right? So it's not going to answer everything, and it's very close to us, so we need to move at it at a slow pace to take this in. But I hope at the end of this message, you know the key truth about marriage, at least three key truths here. And you know especially how it should impact the way you live. It should impact how we do church here. And that's what I'm aiming for, right? So please turn with me to Mark. Uh, there, Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll look at verse 1 to verse 12. You know, you remember just before we dig into this, that where we left Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. We are now on the journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus is passing through Capernaum. That's where we left him at the end of chapter 9. Now we are told at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 10, then verse 1, that Jesus is now entering Judea. It's getting very excited theologically now. We're in exciting territory. I can't wait when Jesus 
enters Jerusalem. Uh, but before that, I want to see him meet, of course, blind Bartimaeus. It's very exciting. So, uh, and as he's entering now Judea, the territory of Judea, Mark tells us that Jesus continues to teach the people. Let's read verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And as has been the case, of course, as Jesus is teaching them, the religious mafia, uh, the, the Pharisees are following him. They are not far behind, so they have come again to trip him and to cause, cause confusion, as it were. And this time they've chosen for Jesus to talk about the subject of marriage and divorce because, of course, Jesus has just entered Herod Antipas's territory, as it were, and they are very keen that uh, he's still within that geography, and they are keen to trap him on this because you remember Herod Antipas has a problem with the Rodius, and this is why John died. He died because he commented on uh, Herod's marriage. So they bring up this subject of divorce and marriage to try and trap Jesus. Look at this, read verse 2 to verse 4. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, that's just sort of Jesus clarifying the question before he answers their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Jesus in from verse 5 to verse 9 is going to give an answer. And later on from verse 10 to verse 12, he will answer the disciples as well about marriage. So I just want to draw out three things that Jesus teaches us about marriage as he responds to the Pharisees here, and particularly beginning from verse 6. And the first thing we learn about marriage from Jesus' response to their question is that God owns marriage. God created marriage. No government department dreamed it up. No NGO developed it. Marriage was born and was conceived and born in the mind of God. Let's look at what Jesus, how Jesus answers in verse 6. Jesus, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, verse 5, he wrote you this commandment. Then he explains what marriage is. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Just as we think about what Jesus just said there, according to Jesus, the key to understanding marriage is not to go back to Deuteronomy, but to go back to Genesis, where we see God establish the first human marriage. In fact, by the way, can I just say, that's a good way to answer any biblical question. Whenever somebody asks you, the first question you ask is, what does Genesis have to say about that? And usually I like to go to Revelation as well. But if you have these Genesis, it's a good way to start. And Jesus starts from that and he quotes from Genesis really. Because he's quoting there Genesis 1 verse 27. Which says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
What we see in Genesis and in the words of Jesus is that human sexuality is sacred. It is sacred because God created it. Human gender as male and female is not a product of evolution. Gender is a direct design of our creator God. That's what verse 6 says, Max 10 verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and females. Now, society now not only tells us that gender is something we make up, that's what we're taught, it also tells us that choosing a different gender from your God-given gender is moral. That's the message of society. You see, ever since Bruce Jenner became Kathleen Jenner and was awarded the Arthur Rush Award for Courage, the media now calls on all of us to celebrate gender confusion. And many so-called Christians have joined in in celebrating this, but Jesus here disagrees, doesn't he? He's saying we don't choose our gender. We are either male or female as determined by the anatomy God gave us at birth. And our God-assigned gender and sexuality must be expressed in the confines of a permanent marriage between a man and a woman. Verse 7 to verse 8 says that, doesn't it? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The key phrase there is one flesh, repeated twice, isn't it? Well, of course it's a repeat. One flesh, one flesh. Jesus is saying marriage is one flesh. It's God taking man and woman, bringing them together, and they become one. It expresses unity in diversity. From our chromosome and hormonal differences to our diverse temperaments and proclivities, men and women are gloriously different. We know that. And yet, despite this profound difference, right, diversity, men and women miraculously come together to create a bond of fidelity to one another as one flesh. And biblically, actually, it's a joining of spirit, isn't it? One flesh. We might even say one spirit joined, commingled together. And this miracle is not man-made. The marriage has been created by God to reflect, as I said, the unity in diversity. Why? Because we must understand that in Genesis, when God creates man and woman, and it says in Genesis 1 verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is man and the woman together that make the image of God. Rather, that expresses the image of God. They are expressing the unity in diversity. As God is three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, yet one Man and woman, two different, come together, together form that unit in diversity. We might say God owns marriage in the same way you own the mirror at home in your house. Because as God looks at the married couple, he sees his image in them. Unity 
in diversity. And so it comes as not a surprise that Jesus tells us here that God is the one who joins people together. It's not Love Island or, or Match.com or Tinder that brings people together. Ultimately, it is God himself. Look at verse 9 of Mark 10. What therefore has joined together, let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate separate. What Jesus is saying is that God not only is the one who defines and creates marriage, is the owner of every legitimate marriage that he has brought into being. And all of, all of all this while you've been thinking you married your wife. No, God brought you together. He does that for unbelieving couples, unbelieving couples. He's the one who's like, you know, we might say God is tender, isn't it? In that sort of holy sense. He's connecting people together. He's the one who does that. Every marriage, God directly brings those two people together. And he owns that legitimate marriage. A legitimate marriage. Not every marriage is legitimate. We'll come to that in a minute. But every legitimate marriage is owned by God. Now, as I was thinking about this, I say I'm preaching to the converted here, isn't it? I suspect most of you have no problem with that statement. Most of you. You have no problem with the statement that God owns marriage. The real issue is not that you have a problem with the statement. The real issue is that you do not live like that statement is true. How do I know this? Because, well, I know this because if Christians believed God owns our marriages... Why are so many men and women addicted to pornography? If you don't own your marriage, why are you defiling it? Because it's not yours. So why are you introducing pornography in your marriage? You know, a survey in 2015 by Premier Magazine revealed, listen to this, four in ten professing Christians in the UK say they have a porn addiction. Two in ten look at porn monthly. And many of these, of course, are married men and women. We now know that women are just as addicted to this issue as men are, including people in the church. And as I think about this issue, I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, can we say these people believe that God owns their marriages? Of course not. Because they introduce things in those marriages because they believe they have a right to decide what goes on in those marriages. We have to ask ourselves in other areas. If you believe God owns your marriage, why are so many Christians and as Christian husbands showing very little sacrificial love to their wives? God commands that husbands must love their wives as Christ loves the church. They must literally die for their wives. Of course, as a husband, I speak for myself, we don't do this. Why? Because at the core, we do not really believe God owns our marriage. We believe we can dictate, we should decide what goes in our marriages. Why are so many Christian wives looking, and as you say, it's mainly I see this among Christian wives, look like they control their homes rather than allowing their husband to express proper authority. I see it all the time. Women 
who have usurped the authority of the man in the home as prophet, king, and priest. <coughs> Truly submissive wives are very rare these days. Very rare. The perversion of gender roles in the church and in the home is as a result of professing Christians believing they own the marriages rather than God. You see, the truth of the matter is that many of us who profess to follow Jesus have for far too long treated marriage as our property. All questions about anything going in your home must start from this question. Who owns this marriage? And so this evening, I want to invite you just to ask this question. In what way, if you're married this evening, in what way am I living as if my marriage is owned by me rather than God? I was attending a very interesting meeting yesterday, actually, whereby every time we had them, because I've been away at a meeting somewhere in Dunstable, at a hotel somewhere, every time they asked, a question was asked, we would pause for five minutes to just pray. And, well, as a man put it, hear from God. I had some few questions around it. But that was the idea, idea to be quiet. And I just wonder, as this question, I think we need to do that more often. We need to ask this question. And pause and take this in. We need to ask ourselves, in what way am I living as if my marriage is owned by me rather than God? And I think just ask God that question even right now. For the Lord to show you in what way you are doing that. And then repent of trying to live as if you own the marriage rather than God. And the reason why you have to ask that question is because actually it benefits you. It's not the fact that you just, you, you're sinning if you're treating like you own your marriage, but you need to ask that question because there's tremendous peace and joy that comes from knowing that God owns my marriage. When, when that sinks in, I just usually breathe a quiet sigh of relief. Okay, thank you. So at one level, it's not up to me. God has got this marriage together. I don't own it. It's his. Chula, you can stop panicking now. <laughs> I, I tell myself, because I realize God owns the marriage. And then you can just hand over everything to God, isn't it? Whatever challenges you may be facing in your own marriage. There's peace that comes from that. And even if you're a single person, actually there's peace that comes from that. Because if you're a single person, you realize God owns marriage. Why are you pushing to try to get married at all costs? When it's God himself who joins people together. Surrender. Leave it to God. Parents, as you think, of course, none of you are good parents of that. You do have parents of that age. As you think about <laughs> your, your, your sons and daughters getting married, you can just thank God that he owns marriage. God knows what plans he has for your daughter. And if you trust him in that, he will do what seems best for her or him. So that's the first truth we need to learn here, is that God owns our marriage. This, the, the second truth Jesus wants us to see is that God opposes any end in marriage. God opposes any end in marriage. You see, God never cheers anyone, any man or woman who decide to break the covenant of marriage. God hates divorce. And I'm sure you've heard enough sermons of Malachi to be reminded of that. God hates divorce as Jesus makes plain here in verse 9. 
Were therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Sister Sylvia remembers, doesn't she? She's very good at memory things. She's reminded us. She remembers that verse. What God has joined together, let not man separate. The, the ending of marriage is anti-God because it is a rejection of God's design for your, mar- for your life. Whenever marriages end, the two have somehow decided it's I know better than God in this situation. The, the ending of marriage is anti-God because marriage expresses the very image of God and therefore it's a desecration of his image to split up, humanly speaking. It is not only anti-God, it is anti-human because it hurts our spouses, it hurts the children, and it hurts the wider extended family. Only the devil celebrates when divorce happens. And of course, the sin of divorce is always... There are two sins here. There's the sin of divorce itself, the sin of splitting. That sin of splitting is always caused by some other underlying sin that leads to that. So perhaps sexual immorality, physical abuse, neglect, and so forth. So we might say that divorce is sinful all the way down. Now, this, of course, does not mean that the sin of divorce uh, and the blame for the divorce is equally shared between the man and woman involved, right? Some are victims or powerless participants in the sinful act of divorcing. And for these people who may be powerless or innocent victims, so to speak, of the act of divorcing itself, not the underlying causes, right? God allows, as it were, divorce in two situations. We know that from the Bible. The first situation where God permits divorce, not, as I said, championing it. He never champions divorce because it's a sin in of itself. But he can permit it, and he permits that. In one situation where the offended party, if you like, he allows the offended party to divorce only the offended party if there is a case of sexual immorality. We know that from Matthew, you can turn there if you want, Matthew 19, verse 9, which is just uh, Matthew's record actually of verse 10 to verse 12 of Mark 10. Um, Matthew 19, verse 9 says this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus there gives the exception, doesn't he, for sexual immorality. What Jesus is saying is that where adultery takes place, the, 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 the guilt for the sin of the actual act of divorcing is largely born by the adulterer. Okay? That's situation number one. The second situation where God allows divorce or permits it uh, is the situation in which the sin of abandonment occurs, the case of abandonment by a non-believer. Uh, you can turn with me if you like to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to 15, uh, where we read these words, don't we? Paul writing, he says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that is, these words are spoken by me, not necessarily 
when the Lord spoke them at the time, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. That means it's just that the marriage is sanctified in the sense that he brings blessings to the Lord because of his wife. It doesn't mean the person is saved. It's just that the blessings come in a marriage as a result of the, that person being involved. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as, is, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Paul is saying, look, a believing spouse should not divorce an unbelieving spouse, right? But if the unbelieving spouse insists on leaving, the Christian spouse should not feel guilty or afraid about this. They should let them go. Obviously, you should work to keep the marriage, but if it doesn't work, you just let them go. You're no longer bound, as it were, by that covenant. Now, that is one situation only where there is abandonment, where that can happen. Now, in my opinion, people have asked about this. What about in the area where there is uh, physical abuse of some sort? In my opinion, deserting your spouse can be understood broadly to include emotional desertion that results in sustained physical abuse. I think where there is physical abuse, I think pastorally, I think that seems permissible to allow divorce. But, of course, I'll leave you to be persuaded of your own in those things. These are matters, ultimately, of um, pastoral judgment um, we have to make. The general point is that God only permits the offended party. That's important. When sexual morality happens, only the offended party has been freed from that obligation. The other ones who's committed sexual morality, no, they shouldn't. They're still bound by that. They've brought about the sin, right? That's the point. God only permits the offended party to divorce. He doesn't sanction it, but he allows it to happen in limited circumstances, in those two limited circumstances, sexual immorality and abandonment, and only to the offended party. Again, this doesn't mean the victim of the adultery or the desertion shares no sin for the wider issues that may have contributed to the divorce. Neither does it mean, the under, neither does it change the underlying truth. God is against any severance of marriages and he generally holds both parties responsible for the sin. Now, as I thought about this truth, the truth that God opposes ending marriage is difficult for many in the world to accept. It seems impossible. It seems impractical. It seems narrow-minded. And the sinful attitude is the reason, this sinful attitude towards what God has said is the reason why 42% of marriages, 42% in England and Wales, end in divorce. That's nearly one in two marriages starting today. Who end in divorce. 
In fact, for every two marriages, new marriages, one existing marriage ends according to the statistics. Now, we tell ourselves, isn't it? The reason why there is that situation is because we tell ourselves, why should I remain in my marriage when it is not meeting my needs? I must do what is good for me. That's the attitude of society. But beloved, God is wise, isn't it? God is wise. And is not lost for answers to the challenges we are facing in our society, the pressures that we face on our marriages. And most importantly, God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. God has given us the church, including its discipline and restoration, to be the means through which we walk through pain, hurt, and marital strife together, not as individuals. You see, when a brother or sister continues in sin against his or her spouse, well, we address that in a serious manner with the gospel. And as Brother Arthur reminded us of the importance of belonging to the church and being fully active, this is another reason, isn't it, on top of what we had this morning, on why you as a believer must fully commit yourself to the local church and must be fully engaged in the life of the church. Why? Because it is a church ultimately that exists to protect your marriage. It seems obvious to me that the best way to protect your marriage and your family is to ensure that you are in a healthy church where sin is being preached on, where the redemptive love of Christ is there, and while you are bonded with other believers who can hold you accountable to your family. And if your husband or wife is being abusive, that can become a matter of church discipline for which they could be helped to go back to a path of restoration. So, that's the way. It is difficult what's being suggested. But as Brother Arthur reminds us, we do ourselves injury if we disengage from the church. Because this is the key for us to work with God to protect marriages, covenanting in among believers. More widely, I think you need to ask yourself this question. Are you, as you sit here this evening, actively protecting your marriage and the marriages of other people in this fellowship. Are you doing that? Again, many of us would answer yes. We would answer yes, wouldn't we? But beloved, if we care for our marriages, why is there, as I've said, a lack of sexual self-control among Christians in our churches? I've already mentioned the inferno of adultery. By the way, can I just make the point that pornography is adultery? Can we all agree on that? Jesus calls that a, a sin, a sexual sin. That is adultery. If you're married and you're looking at pornography, you're committing adultery. In the Old Testament, probably you'd be stoned. I don't know what used to happen down there. But you might probably be stoned for that. Well, the Pharisees anyway they thought stoning, I should be clear. It's the Pharisees who thought they needed to stone the woman, didn't they? But let's be clear about that, right? Now, I've already talked about that, but there are other sexual sins that we allow in the church. For example, suggestive dressing. There is a tragic lack of modesty in dressing in our churches. Among women, including in this fellowship. We don't 
our ladies don't always think carefully about how they are dressed. I think it's a serious issue that we must consider this. Because you see, beloved, if you're not dressed properly, I'm not here to tell you how to dress, but the point is, if, if you're not dressed in a modest way and you're sat next to a brother who struggles with pornography, you must ask yourself, are you helping that brother or not? Are you helping that brother who's weak in that area to grow in holiness or not? I mean, brothers, I know we can laugh about that. It's a serious issue. Because one brother has told me that has been a problem for him sometimes. In this church. And the answer, of course, we're not helping if we're not thinking about these things. The Bible says we are causing others to stumble. That's just one, I thought, easy application there to help you think about. There are many ways that we might not be taking care of marriages of others if we ourselves are not even thinking about such basic issues as how we are dressed. So let us examine ourselves, isn't it, and repent of those things to ensure that we are on the side of God by living in a way that opposes the ending of marriages. Our society is struggling with marriages because the church is struggling with marriage. Divorce statistics, sadly, they are not that hugely different between Christians and non-Christians either. So that's the second truth, isn't it? The first truth is that God owns marriage. The second truth we have just seen there is that God opposes, because he owns it, he opposes any end in marriage. The final truth Jesus teaches us here is that God cares for marriage. It just follows from that. He not only opposes ending it, but he actively cares for it. And God profoundly cares for our marriages uh, by, by the fact that he expresses this care by not only warning us against the sin of divorce, he warns us, he, he, he prohibits remarriages to be blunt. Right? And this is at the heart of the discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are claiming that God permits divorce anyhow. Right? Let's read verse 24 again. And the Pharisees came up to him and said, in order to test him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, why did Moses command you? Verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They are saying, Moses permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Verse 1 to 4. You can look it up. But what they have actually left out is that Moses permitted divorce there for indecency. Right? And it is obvious as you read Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, that indecency there is sexual immorality, right? Uh, especially leaving the husband. That was a contest. Leaving the husband for another man. But sadly, the Pharisees have widened the definition of indecency, right? At this time, during the time of Jesus, you can divorce your wife if you, you've woken up for a breakfast and she's put toast, as it were, and the toast has become burnt. You could divorce your wife for that. It was allowed in the oral law. So there are all these ridiculous ideas for which just makes the whole thing quite farcical, to be honest. And the disciples want Jesus to endorse this behavior, right? But Jesus says, look, Moses never endorsed divorce. He allowed divorce. Big difference. We need to get that. Look at this five. 
And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Right? In other words, this is saying, look, what Moses was trying to do was working within a theocratic society to mitigate the effects of sin in a theocratic society. That's why he permitted the certificate of divorce and he permitted it in a limited way. The reason for it was that Moses wanted to reduce the number of divorces, actually. Because if, if, if it was not regulated, people would just go around, 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 right? And the other thing is that Moses wanted to, um, to protect husbands. He wanted to protect, um, he wanted to protect um, women from predatory husbands. So it was partly done for that. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. Look, don't even look to Moses. Look back to Genesis. Now, when the disciples hear this, yeah, they're troubled, right? So they now come to Jesus and they ask for more info, right? And Jesus clarifies that remarriages actually are so prohibited way beyond what you think or Moses even stipulated. Look at verse 10 to verse 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus says, look, divorce period is, once you divorce, you can't remarry. It's that simple. A plain reading of verse 10 to verse 12 is that, once you divorce, you can't remarry. Now, this raises questions, doesn't it? To say, I'm like, why is Jesus forbidding all remarriages at all, even where God permits, remar- permits divorce, right? And this might surprise you that the Bible is actually not very clear. I encourage you to search this question. I came to this passage thinking that the Bible permits remarriage. But actually, as I've been looking at this, I've realized, no, the Bible is actually not very clear on this matter at all. But let's start with where the Bible is clear, right? It is clear, praise the Lord, that widows can remarry, right? We know that. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8 to 9, you can look it up. It's clear about that. If you've been married, your husband has died. Marriage is a bond broken by death, and you're freed from that. But what is unclear is whether the offended party in divorces involving sexual immorality or desertion can also remarry. In fact, it might surprise some of you here that the church fathers who lived closer to the time of the apostles believed that any remarriage is a sin because the marital bond is only broken at death. That's what the church fathers believed. Most evangelicals today do not share the position of the church fathers. Some says, why would God allow, not allow remarriage when he permits divorce? It's not logical, but of course, that's a slippery slope, isn't it? There are many things that are not logical. Is God being three in one logical? I just can't get my logic around that. Jesus being fully God and fully man, that doesn't appear much. Human logic, of course, that's beyond human logic. So arguing on the basis of logic, my friend, is not the way to argue. Some argue on the basis of Moses 
permitting these marriages, the certificate of divorces. But as I've just shown you, the certificate of divorces were operating in a theocratic society, trying to regulate sin in a theocratic society. He was working in a second best situation, trying to prevent sin. In the same way, we might say there were a politician who has lost the battle uh, stopping society from committing abortion can work very hard to limit where abortion takes place and work very hard to ensure that only narrative. That's what we might say that's similar to what Moses was doing with divorce. So we, can, we know abortion is wrong, and Moses would argue remarriage is wrong, perhaps, when we read Deuteronomy. I, perhaps the most sound appeal for remarriage is Jesus' statement in Matthew 19. Verse 9. You can turn to that. As I said, we are going on a bit today and trying to wrap our head around this. But Matthew 19, verse 9 says this. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Some, you need to read that again. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Some argue that remarriage is possible because the permission clause in Matthew 19, verse 9, except for sexual immorality, applies to divorce and for marrying another, right? So they would say, if Jesus permits... <laughs> You just have to read that for yourself to carry it around it. But essentially, the permission clause applies to both. Since Jesus, is, since Jesus seems to be saying, actually, you can divorce your wife under sexual immorality, and you can marry another, and for you, that is not adultery. Some people argue that, right? I think it is possible to read it like that. And I think it is up to each legitimately divorced Christian to make the call of that scripture for themselves. My own judgment is that we should try and err on the side of caution. I don't think it is wise to make life-changing decisions based on a verse that could be interpreted either way. I don't think that's how you make decisions. You make decisions in light of clearer verses. So personally, my own personal position is, I am with the church fathers. Remarriage in cases where divorce is permitted is most likely not permitted by God. Period. I am of the view that marriage is a covenant only broken by death. But each of you are free to reach your own conclusions. And I think the church should respect your decision to remarry if you Believe in, the, in that interpretation of Matthew 19, verse 9. Because good and faithful Christians have interpreted that verse that way. I don't think it's a verse in which the church should direct your conscience. Rather, this is a verse in which you must reach your own conscience. I've told you what I think, how I live my life on erring on the side of caution. And I would say, if you ever find yourself in that situation advising someone, you'd have to explain that to them, Matthew 19. If a sister or a brother decides to remarry based on Matthew 19, verse 9, I think we should respect that and we should seek to support 
their marriage in the best possible way that we can. Even if we held a different interpretation of that verse. The main truth here is that God cares for our marriages and he does it by preventing remarriages. In my own understanding, that's all remarriages. And what does this then mean for each of us? Well, if you're married, then continue to love your spouse. You're locked in, brother. (laughs) Your marriage, as far as I'm concerned, is permanent. Love your wife, work at it. Same for the wife, work at the marriage. And cooperate with God to protect your marriage, right? If you are divorced on biblical grounds, I believe you should focus on resting in the gospel in your singleness. If somebody left you because they committed adultery or because they deserved to deal with abuse or whatever, now you are divorced, you should rest in that, in your singleness, and seek to serve God as a single. But if you believe, as I've said, that God permits you to remarry, based on Matthew 19, verse 9, and God sends someone, then prayerfully seek his will about it. It's likely if you came to me, I'll tell you what I think. But prayerfully seek that. And you do, I think, have the freedom to consider that in that. And I just say, as a church, we shouldn't be judge those who reach different views on Matthew 19, verse 9. I would say that as a church, we should seek to be understanding in that sense. Right? If you terminated your marriage for an unbiblical reason, and you are single now, you should repent. And seek to be reunited with your former spouse. You're going to have lots of questions on that, so I'm going to try and run away after I finish quickly. But you, <laughs> but you should repent and seek to be reunited. If the person has moved on, then I would fall back on the position that you should accept that now you're single and seek to live for God. But I, I'm allowing you, as I've said, your own interpretation of Matthew 19, verse 9. Or you can talk to me about that afterwards. What about us as a church, finally? This has been a long sermon, hasn't it? What about us as a church, right? We can't finish without talking about the church. Well, we need to realize that God cares for our marriages, right? And he expects us as his family to care for each other's marriages. Uh, Too often, we have to be honest, we sit back and abdicate our biblical responsibilities. We are so vocal uh, about the public and what's going on with the fact that people, the society doesn't care for marriage? We care a lot about what the government is doing for marriage. But we have to ask ourselves the question, are we caring for each other's marriages here? Don't worry about what Boris Johnson is doing, only nationally, whether he's pursuing the right post. What are you doing to care for people God has entrusted to you? Are you just waiting, by the way, for something to go wrong in their marriages before you start helping? That would be too late. What are you doing now to nature those marriages, right? God has called us to comfort one another with grace and love, and I think that means not waiting to stand with people in their marriages when their marriages are falling apart and it's too late, but to start opening our homes to them. I will know this church cares about marriage and believes in it when we start opening our homes to single people so we can know them deeply. When we start praying for others around us who are struggling in their marriage, then I know we really care about marriage. You can't tell me you care about marriages of other people when you never even invite a single couple in the church in your home or spend time with them. That's not caring for marriages. So this, I think that when I thought about this, it's challenging us to open our hearts and our homes to singles. 
couples divorced so that we can help them and they can help us find joy and forgiveness and strength in Christ in our marriages. And this can only happen when we believe in our hearts the three truths we have learned about marriage from our Lord Jesus today. God owns our marriages. God opposes any end in marriage. And of course, God cares for our marriages. Amen.